Picture this. You're walking through a creepy construction site with your friends after a classic mall hang when a very weird creature emerges from a mysterious aircraft and informs you of an alien species that is trying to sneakily take down humans by inhabiting their brains. You'd be out of there, right? Well, when you are the only humans, like period, who have this important information, you might be a little slower to run away. You might feel like you are responsible for fighting back. That's how the Animorphs feel anyway. Animorphs were the creation of K.A. Applegate, the writing team composed of Catherine Applegate and her husband. The first book in the extensive series was called The Invasion and was published in 1996, and it sets up the conflict I just described, classic Mulhang and all. The Invasion is narrated by Jake, a teenager at the center of a friend group that also includes Tobias, Marco, Rachel, and Cassie. With the knowledge they gained at the construction site, the pals set out to fight the human-hungry Yerks. It helps that they've been endowed with special technology that helps them morph into the animals of their choice. We discuss all of these juicy world-building details more in the episode that follows, and we also discuss things like the Scholastic Industrial Complex, the blurry line between YA and middle grade books in the 90s, Animorphs as a metaphor for puberty, cult behavior, Applegate's anti-war stance, and more. My guest even does some real-time research and fact-checking about what happens at the end of the Animorphs series. Today, let's welcome Ashley Poston to the pod. Ashley graduated from the University of South Carolina and has spent the last 10 years in the publishing industry as a social media coordinator, a marketing designer, and finally, an author and cat mother. When not writing, she likes to build miniature rooms and take long walks as an excuse to listen to Dungeons & Dragons podcasts. She lives in South Carolina with her bossy cat, Paprika, and they are firm believers that we are all a bunch of weirdos looking for other weirdos, asking for their AO3 username. Ashley's new book, The Dead Romantics, is available wherever you buy books. Follow her on Twitter at Ash Poston and on Instagram at HeyAshPoston. Ashley and I have been working to get this on the calendar for such a long time, and I can promise you that this conversation was 100% worth the wait. Want to learn more about the podcast or about me or my personal reading or my dog? Instagram is the best place to do it. Find the show there at SSRPod. We are also on Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. I know you hear this from all of your favorite podcasters, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I hope you'll forgive me. Sharing the show is one of the very best things you can do to show your support for our work. This is especially true for independent creators like me. Help get the word out by sharing a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story, or by posting a five-star rating or review to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If there are people you'd like to see on the show, tweet at them. Small gestures like this make a big difference. Becoming an SSR patron is a slightly bigger gesture, but you can do it for as little as a dollar per month, which still makes it pretty doable. At each tier of support on Patreon, you'll receive unique exclusive rewards. Membership in the SWR, Shit We Read, book club is probably the most popular, but there are plenty of others to explore at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast, or when you go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. I am so grateful to all of the patrons listening now and would love to continue growing that community. It's a really special group of readers that has made a huge impact on the show over the last few years. This episode is brought to you by the AHK Writing Community, a project I started back in April in hopes of connecting aspiring fiction writers and sharing what I learned in my MFA program. Whether you think writing short stories could be a fun hobby, or you've already written half of a novel, you're welcome in this group. I offer accountability, workshopping, prompts, writing advice, sharing challenges, and lots of writing discussion. All of our founding members have stuck around since the beginning, which I like to think is a testament to what they're taking from the experience. Check it out at www.patreon.com slash ahkwriters and feel free to send me a DM if you have any questions. I can't wait to meet you and to read your work. Let's talk about audiobooks for a moment, shall we? 
Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Happy listening! Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to SSR. Hi, it's so great to be here. So we talked about this for a few minutes off mic, but this has literally been in the works for, I want to say... Literal years. (laughs) Literal years, like three years. So I think it was the first New Reads November that we did on the show, which would have been 2018. We talked about one of your books, The Princess and the Fangirl. I'm torn between like telling people to go listen to it because I want them to hear the conversation, but also I'm afraid because I was such a new podcaster at the time. I have <laughs> no idea like what the quality is like, but I had so much fun reading that book and my guest on that episode was a friend of yours. And so we were like, oh, maybe we can get Ashley on the show. And by like, it was nobody's fault, but for the past few years, we've just kind of been going back and forth and I am thrilled. Like, let's just take a minute absorb the moment we're here you're here finally happened also i have to say i loved that podcast episode i did listen to it like a while ago it was charming i loved it so everyone should go back and listen to it thank you but don't judge the audio quality only (laughs) judge the quality of the conversation itself that's good to hear we don't have that many i mean there's there's now a, a small but growing list of people who have the distinction of both having their own books reviewed on the show and then being guests on the show because like a few of our authors from New Reads November books have then come on. So you are now on that list and I'm very excited. I'm so touched, it's like the SNL list. <laughs> it is, I need to get you a really cool jacket of some sort. Um, absolutely, 100%. Let's, let's go for like two or three times so I can be up there with like Chevy Chase. Okay, yeah, stay tuned for the jacket. I need to have the design drawn up and then it will be at your house. I'm also excited because we are talking about Animorphs today. We're talking about the first book in the series, The Invasion, but we're also kind of talking about the series as a whole because this is such a big cultural... 54 books! 54 books. It's so zeitgeisty. It's so 90s. And I have a confession to make, Ashley, which is that I never read Animorphs as a kid. That's also my confession, too. That's why I picked it. Really? Okay. (laughs) Like, the first one I read was last night for this podcast. So okay, this makes like, me feel I better. This entire, this entire zeitgeist. Right, like where were we? I, I, I reading horse books, I guess. That's where I was. Same. Okay, were you aware of Animorphs? Like, what was your understanding of this franchise? I knew about it. So I knew about it in daycare because I, I went to daycare for a long time, and there was like a shelf of books, and like almost all of them were animorphs, and there were just like kids like sitting and reading and discussing animorphs like day in and day out. And I wasn't part of that group. I was um I was I was part of the artist foul group. <laughs> so 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 that was where my heart lied. And I guess I never really like got into the whole like alien invasion thing. Aliens usually aren't my jam. I, I guess because like if I want aliens, I want I want like xenomorph aliens, right? I saw Alien way too young, way 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 too young, and it just kind of like like shifted my understanding of aliens and what I wanted from an alien story. So if it's not like horror sci like hard sci-fi, I usually gravitate away from it. Okay, well I I'm on that same page right there with you. I am generally not drawn to aliens. I was fully traumatized by E.T. when I was a kid. <laughs> I don't know why, but, like, I think I probably, you know, it was it was the early to mid-90s. Like, everybody was watching E.T. It was supposed to be this, like, heartwarming family film. And he my parents so played weird. it for me at a time that was probably, like, 
fine. Like, I don't know, maybe five or six. But I, it like, it broke me. Like, I have such visceral memories of like sobbing and being so freaked (laughs) out by him. And I don't think I've ever been the same. Oh, no, that's horrible. Uh, Full disclosure, I think I've seen E.T. once. I think I've seen it once. Uh, I have seen the E.T. knockoff, whatever it's called, like something in me. It's not Marley and me, but it's like. That I can't watch either. That also traumatized me. (laughs) Also also, also traumatized me too. But no, there's like, there's this E.T. knockoff that's just really funny. Like it's in like the top 100 bad movies of all time. And I rewatch it all the time because it's so bad. Do you, do you know the clip of like the boy in the wheelchair going down the hill with like the alien strapped to his back? Yeah. Uh, then they, yeah, that's from that movie. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Okay. It is, it is so bad. Yeah. I mean, listeners, I'm sure there are a lot of you out there who love E.T. Maybe he holds a special place in your heart. Maybe you love alien centric media. We are coming at this from more of a beginner's perspective, and I kind of love that. We're on like an even playing field. We're exploring this universe of Animorphs together. Did you ever watch the, I guess you didn't watch the show then either, because I knew there was a Nickelodeon show, but I wasn't allowed to watch Nickelodeon as listeners know, so that just like never was a thing. What? You weren't allowed to? Oh, oh man. (laughs) I was... I, I think I should have been more supervised as a kid, but I, I was not. It was a, I got to watch anything. I remember distinctly like watching Buffy in 1997 when I was seven years old, mind you. Yeah, I mean, I was watching like, I was watching musty TV, like Friends, uh, Dharma and Greg. Does anybody Dharma remember that one? Greg. Yeah, Mad About You. Like I was watching all of those, but for a very specific reason, I was not allowed to watch Nickelodeon. That reason has to do with Harriet the Spy. Longtime listeners of the show know all about it. Go listen to episode one. Although, again, I'm nervous to direct you to episode one. <laughs> I tell the whole story there. But, yeah, I just really didn't encounter Animorphs much outside of the shelf, the shelves that held all of these many books at my school library. But finally, we are here. We are adults. We are reading Animorphs for the first time. Let's talk a little bit about the origin story of this series first, shall we? Okay, yeah, let's do it. All right, here's what I found. So, Animorphs was written by K.A. Applegate, which is, in fact, two people. Mm-hmm, it is. Catherine Applegate is an author. who we've, we've covered a couple of her other books on the show. The title escapes me now, but it was this, like, more teen romance book about some kids who live in a beach town in New England. I am completely blanking oh. on the title, but we read that, which I had never even heard of that series, but it was, it was a series that was very important to the guests, so we checked it out. Catherine Applegate's husband also worked on the Animorphs series with her. So K.A. Applegate is both of those two people together working on the series. There are 54 books, as you mentioned earlier. Let's say again, 54. And this is the part that really blows my mind. They were published between the years of 1996 and 2001. No! Yes. No! That is, okay, so, like, these books are, are kind of small. They're, like, you know, maybe 200 pages. So they're, like, maybe 40,000 words a pop. But that, over 54 books here, let me get my, let me get my calculator We're out doing math. real quick. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I can't wait to hear the results. That is over 2 million words. <laughs> it's a lot of words. It's also a lot of books per year. And there are a lot of think pieces out there, and I'll link to all of them in the show notes, as always, listeners, about just kind of like what what people refer to as the scholastic industrial complex of the 90s, which is really about like quantity over quality and just like how many books were churned out in series like this one. About half of the books were written by ghostwriters, if that makes you feel any better, Ashley. Like, it wasn't all <laughs> Applegate. It does make you feel yeah. a little better. <laughs> a little bit. They they did write outlines for the books that they didn't write themselves, and then they passed them off to ghostwriters, most of whom were their, like, writing protégés or former editors of theirs. So they James Patterson did. Sweet. Yeah, <laughs> they sure did. Hopefully they don't James Patterson anything else in the future. Would love that. Yeah, I mean, so the only other books that I know from K.A. Applegate is the Everworld series, which I was obsessed with for a while. Okay, I never read those. 
Really? Oh yeah. man, they are super, super out of print. I've been trying to collect them for years, and it's just really hard uh, to get, like, because they were paperback originals, right? They were about um, a group of teens who go into this, like, other ever world where, like, the gods of, like, mythology exist. It was Percy Jackson before it was Percy Jackson. Okay. So it was, it was pretty fun. Interesting. I guess I'm just, I'm behind the times on a lot of these 90s series. Um, I did find that Scholastic has said that Animorphs had a higher sell-in than almost any of their other series around this time. So we're talking about Babysitter's Club. We're talking about Goosebumps. We're talking about like all of these iconic series. Within a year and a half after the first book was published, again, that's The Invasion, the series had nearly 10 million copies in print. Oh my god! (laughs) That is... 10 million copies in print? Listeners, Ashley is not well. I am not well. Okay, like for, so for, okay, so, so to to put this in like perspective, right now um, on the adult paperback list, Colleen Hoover is selling 70,000 copies a week. (laughs) Like, so it's just like, it's these massive quantity of, of books over 10 million. That is and this is before ebooks. Like, we're talking about 10 million paperbacks. paperbacks. I mean, let's not even talk about the paper shortage that's pushing even Britney Spears' book back. Oh, poor Britney. <laughs> Leave Britney alone, paper shortage. Leave her alone. Just give the woman some paper. So, yeah, I mean, Animorphs was a big deal. I don't know why I was never interested, but I just wasn't. Catherine Applegate really was most interested in exploring animals. Like she has been quoted in a couple of interviews talking about how she grew up with what she calls like the standard suburban menagerie of dogs, cats, gerbils, etc. And she really wanted to like dive into the animal kingdom um, for a new series. And she thought it would be interesting to place teens in the brains of various animals. And so from there, the concept of Animorphs was born high level. The series is about a war between the Yerks, uh, who are like otherworldly alien invaders, and humans. At the beginning of this book, we meet an Andalite, who is sort of like the former primary rival of the Yerks, if I'm not mistaken. But the Andalites, they have been wiped out for a year. Like, there are no Andalites coming back for a year. This Prince Andalite has explained this to main character Jake and his four best friends. And so in the meantime, these five teens are the only creatures on the face of the earth that have the power and the knowledge necessary to fight against the Yerks. And if the Yerks are not checked, they will invade the brains, spirits, beings, bodies of humans yeah because they're like these like goopy flubbery like slugs yeah they're like slugs that like go into your brain and then you they pilot you like a gundam yeah so we got it we really need to like we have to chill them out right like that doesn't sound pretty we don't want to know what happens when those weird slug flubber whatever creatures take over and so jake and his friends tobias marco rachel and cassie need to figure out how to stop the madness and prevent the Yerks from ruining everything. That's the high level. Now, I am told, according to Wikipedia and other sources, that every one of the 54 books in this series focuses on a a different event in this war between the two sides. Of course, in this book, we're setting up the war. We're learning about the characters. Jake is our narrator. Again, I am told from Wikipedia and elsewhere that the books are, are each told from the perspective of a different one of that five sum. So in this book, of course, Jake is the star, but in the other books, we might be in the head of Marco or Tobias or Rachel or Cassie. And Jake is kind of the unofficial leader of the group, or maybe the official leader. Like they really, they really seem to trust him. They think that he has what it takes to lead them to whatever victory is meant to look like in this scenario. Yeah, they all kind of gravitate around him for some reason because I think Rachel's his cousin and then Tobias was just like the weird kid who just tagged along because they both had their heads dunked in a toilet together right as one does (laughs) you know that's how most people make friends yeah I guess you're yeah that's a good point like not only do they seem to just think that Jake is well suited personality wise to be a leader but he is like the center like Marco I think is his longtime best friend Mm-hmm. Rachel, as you mentioned, is his cousin. And then Cassie is like his crush. Cassie is his crush, <laughs> who I think is Rachel's best friend. Yes. And then Tobias, like it's kind of sad. As you mentioned, like they bonded in this really embarrassing moment for Tobias. But early in the book, 
Jake has this interior moment where he's like, oh, like, I didn't really know we were friends. Like, I just, I thought I was doing the right thing by standing up for this kind of nerdy guy. But I didn't, like, I don't think Jake thought that they were going to be bonded for life. He just didn't want to see somebody's head getting dunked in the toilet. But alas, Tobias is here to stay. Well, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And then he's going to turn into a bird. And then who knows what's going to happen next. He never turns back. I know that much. <laughs> Does he ever turn back? No, he doesn't. He dies. <laughs> Oh my I know gosh. that. Much. Okay, I did do a little bit of reading about the end of the series, which I do want to talk about because that in itself is kind of fascinating. Like the trajectory that the overall arc takes is is fascinating, and the author has some. Oh, good because yeah. I did not make that research. I was Uh-oh. like, you know what? I only know this like this like kind of pop culture knowledge about the Bird Boy. That's it. That's all I know because everyone I knew loved. Brace Marcus. yourself. Brace yourself oh, for no. info about the ending. So. There's only four human teens, and then Tobias remains a bird for the rest of the series. I think so, yeah. I, I Like, as far as I remember from, like, my friends talking about it, yeah, he kind of remains that bird. Okay, that makes what I learned about the ending even creepier. Oh, no. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Let's talk about the invasion. So what were your first impressions, especially as, like, a newbie to bo- this book, this series, these characters? What were you thinking as you got into this world? The first thing that I thought was like, wow, they're teenagers in a middle grade novel. That is, that is novel because like you don't see that anymore, uh, teenagers in a middle grade novel. Usually if they're teenagers in a novel, it's automatically punted to, to YA. So that was kind of refreshing to see, honestly, a younger like series of books about older kids also i just realized that like so many like middle grade tropes and staples come from animorphs and also animorphs is just real weird like like some people like some kids did not realize that like that like they're like kink like pinged on the second they read these books Mm -hmm. but like they they realized like 10 years later probably yes welcome to the background and the origin story of your kink readers (laughs) right just like, oh, now I understand the, the ice planted barbarian people. Now I get it. Ah, yes, of course. I want to talk a little bit more about what you said about teenagers in middle grade. Because there's a lot out there written about this. And again, all of this will be linked in the show notes. Where there are people that come at this from all kinds of angles. Because like you said, like these are short books. They certainly seem to lean middle grade in terms of format. I think I read online somewhere that they average between 20,000 and 30,000 words her title and they look they look like the rest of the scholastic paperbacks that were marketed to middle grade readers and they were marketed to middle grade readers like they were handed to kids that were probably like nine years old and older um and I think there were a lot of really precocious kids who were good readers who were reading them when they were even younger than that babysitters club is kind of similar I think in that they are written about, I believe they're like 11 and 12. And I think, again, younger kids were reading them just because they were written to that to that reading level. But there are a lot of people in various articles and essays and think pieces over the last few years that have talked about how like these books are so dark. And I guess there's been some pushback over the years or like controversy about whether or not they're too dark for the age group that they seem to be actually written for based on the format like the idea is that it's a little confusing that maybe there's a mismatch between the content and the format and some people are really for that and some people are not so much I will say like I think part of it has to do with the fact that in the 90s and even in the early aughts the lines between like middle grade and YA were much blurrier than they are now because Mm -hmm. the individual categories were not nearly as large as they are now I mean, even to to bring up like the series that shall not be named by the author that shall not be named, like I feel like those books were read by kids from ages seven to like 18, like, and that was the biggest, and part of it was of course their popularity, but I just think as the individual middle grade and YA categories have grown over the years and and there are increasingly like wonderful and well-crafted stories in those categories and readers have more to choose from there aren't those blurry lines but I remember being a kid in the 90s and like anything that looked like it might be a fit for me I would take it didn't really matter to me how old the kids were Mm -hmm. exactly same like I was like I remember reading some ice skating books where the kids were teenagers teenagers yeah like they were they were like the hard bound and Mm -hmm. anyway I think there was one called breaking the ice Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they were they were so good, but but they were about teenagers. But I read it when I was like in middle school. So yeah, I think I think younger kids don't really care what age the characters are as long as like it's a good story. For instance, like Percy Jackson. Like people love like the original trio, but they also love all the tertiary characters who are older, and most of them are fan favorites too. I also think there was something aspirational, at least for me. Like I enjoyed reading about kids that were older than I was. And I almost, I remember being like a little bit let down by that when I got older into high school. And I guess at that point I started reading books that were technically written for adults, but there was something so cool as an elementary or middle schooler about getting into the world of kids that were older and cooler than I was at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is maybe something that's been lost a little bit because in a really beautiful way, there are authors out there that are really carefully writing books for people at very specific points in their lives. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, you lose that sense of like, ooh, like let me see what it would be like to be a 12-year-old when I'm eight, or let me see what it would be like to be a 15-year-old when I'm 11. Yeah, like I think that's also the appeal to a lot of like media these days too, because like, for instance, Disney, when we look at like 90s Disney Channel original movies, they were like, none of them were about middle schoolers. They were all about high schoolers, but they were aimed at, the middle school demographic and that has never really changed and like it's it's lined up like the high school musical the musical the tv series is 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 high schoolers but like the entire the entire show is like aimed for middle schoolers and i think that is something that just has like stuck around in tv but has not stuck around in books because we think that like if someone's reading a book, they want to read a book about someone their own age, which like as an adult, maybe that's true. But as a, t but as like a kid, that's not really as true because you're wondering, oh, what is it like to be an adult or what is it like to be a teenager? I would agree. I would also argue that High School Musical, the musical, the series is targeted at 31 year olds, but that's neither here nor there. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean like that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a different conversation a given. A there. Given. <laughs> It's like how Julia the Phantoms was not targeted for, for middle schoolers. It was targeted at 30-year-old at millennials who wanted that show in the 90s. Live your life, everyone. Watch your shows. Enjoy it. So this book also opens, like so many, so many of the great tales of the 90s and the early aughts, at the mall. At the mall? They're mall rats. They even call themselves mall rats. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is... It was, it was great. I loved it. I was like blessed for the past. Did you spend a lot of time at the mall when you were a teenager? I did. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I get this. I, 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 like, I was like, oh, this is like a homecoming almost because you don't really read that anymore. Yeah, it feels good to be back in a mall. Like when I was in high school, all the first kisses happened at the mall. Like all of the, ooh, like am I going to ask you out? That was all at the mall. Like your whole life revolved around these peak moments that would take place at very carefully planned and plotted mall hangs on the weekends. Spencer's or Hot Topic or Claire's food or the court. food court. Yes, Orange Julius, the whole thing. So I love that we open at the mall and then these, these kids do something a little dangerous and they walk through a construction site, which they're not supposed to do. A construction site of all places. I will say like it seems pretty, like I, there's no part of me that, even if that was like a serious shortcut, like I don't think I ever would like choose to walk through a construction site. Mm -mm. No, there's like too many things that could kill you in a construction site. I'm sorry. No, I've seen too many horror movies where like people just get off to construction sites. Yeah, there was like a little moment of uh, some, I believe, toxic masculinity. I can't remember if it was Jake or Marco, but they're like to the girls, like, oh, we'll protect you at the construction site. Like, don't worry, we're here. Oh, yeah, that was Jake. I was like, mm, Rachel and Cassie's about to kick your ass. So Yeah, and they, they stood up to him. They were like, we they don't did. need you. I was like, oh, this is this is good. This yeah. is the 90s nostalgia that I remember. Right. I read the Jake quote, and I was like, ugh. And then I read the Rachel Cassie quote, and I was like, yes, this is good. Like, they're good contrast. And so when they're walking through the construction site, they spot this alien ship, and then the Andalite descends. He is a prince, which they find out later. I had some trouble throughout this book, like picturing what these various creatures looked like. I will say the language is like very descriptive about them. I think that the craft that we see on display in the in this book is really impressive. Like Catherine Applegate and her husband, to whatever extent he was involved 
in the writing of this book, although I didn't see as much about him when I was researching. It's beautifully written and her descriptions of what all of these different like species look like they're they're great but maybe it's just the limits of my own imagination as an adult like I couldn't picture what anything was supposed to look like yeah the the the, the description of the andalite's horns with the eyes at the top really icked me out I was like no we're, we're gonna pretend that that's not a thing and he's just gonna look like a centaur or something <laughs> it's just yeah He's going to be Mr. Tumnus from yeah. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, although he also freaked me out when I was a kid. So Really? Yeah, maybe I was just like a really scared child. Oh, man, he was adorable, though, with those little, like, goat hooves. Anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> I know. There's just, I had there's posters. Just... It's fine. You had Mr. Tumnus posters? <laughs> yeah. I was huge into into the whole Narnia craze. Like it was like him and like Prince Caspian and like you know, uh, I think I think like I had I had a poster of like Edmund as well. <laughs> I get the Edmund thing. I think that the like one of the older also, adaptations, Susan. Susan I think Susan. one of the older adaptations of it, like maybe it was like a TV miniseries or something. My grandmother had them on VHS, and I believe the Mister Tumnus depiction in that adaptation was like kind of creep city but anyway I digress I think I kind of I've seen some stills from it yeah kind of, kind of yeah creepy. and like if I'm not mistaken Mr. Tumnus ends up being a little bit shady yeah I mean yeah yeah I mean he's a he, he's a dude who hangs around a light post <laughs> yeah and doesn't he sell somebody out he does he I, I don't remember anything from, from Narnia, if we're being honest. Well, I do not personally want to be stuck in a situation where a dude who hangs out by a light post, who's like half goat, half man, is selling me out to an evil witch. So I'm going to stick yeah. to my original instincts on that, and we're going to go back to Animorphs because I could talk about <laughs> Mr. Tumnus and my fear of him all day. So the Andalite gives the kids like the whole rundown of what's happening with the Yerks, and they hide because the Yerks are descending and they're going to kill the Andalite and then literally rip him limb from limb or whatever other body parts he has. That was so disturbing. Like, like when that moment happened, I'm like, I'm glad they like cut away in, in like the, the chapter, but like they still wrote like the horror the teens were like were feeling into it without actually writing much of the gore and I was like oh this is a great way to do this but also man that's that's a lot of limbs to be ripping up and also to be biting yeah well the teens were aware that it wasn't something they wanted to see which I thought was interesting like you don't always see that so we, we cut away from the scene and it's not on the page but the teens are almost like by not watching it we know how bad it is if that makes any sense yeah, it was it it was very artfully done, and like it, it's part of like you know writing like horror and craft. Like you don't have to see the monster to be afraid of it. You 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 can like see the reactions to the monster, and that usually like instills more fear and more like anxiety than seeing it happen on page. Yeah. Oh, well, I I I got the message that it wasn't something that I wanted to see, and now these teens are faced with an immense pressure because if they do not deal with this situation the yerks are going to take over everything yep and they get this like handy dandy morph sort of technology yeah the morph technology tell me more about that because i left that out let's explain that to the listeners as a reminder so so before the yerks descend uh the prince of the horned eyeball people <laughs> the andalites uh was like here take this morph technology you can turn into anything for two hours and only two hours if you go beyond two hours you can never turn back and they're like we don't believe you like this is stupid and then uh and so they hightail it out of the construction site and then the next morning what is it, Tobias comes to Jake and is like, hey, guess what? I tried that morphing technology stuff and it works. Yeah. So uh, I was my cat. Yeah, I was my cat. And then, like, Jake turns into his dog, Homer. And, like, just, like, the, the, the way the way the, like, transformations happy, happen kind of, like, ick me out a little bit, too. Like, just some of the descriptions. Like, I know toward towards the end of the book, Jake, like, there's a, th th there's a sentence that's, like, my tail squirted out and I was like no we're just we're just gonna keep going past this 
Yeah, the, the visuals uh, did not necessarily sit right with me either. There is another adaptation coming um, in 2020, Paramount and Universal and Nickelodeon, I think, announced that they were working on a movie. And it'll be interesting to see or to hear about, because I don't know that I'll see it because it might freak me out. It'll be interesting to hear about how all of that is put on screen in 2022, 2023 technology. Yeah, because like, like, for like, for like, so, so for, for the guys is pretty grotesque. But then like, whenever, like the, the, the two girls transform is like, oh, she transforms with all of her clothes on while like the guys lose their clothes. And I'm like, that's a little tiny bit sus. I see the censorship there. <laughs> yeah, it was like this weird thing of like, Oh, and I hate to use this phrase, like, oh, like locker rooms, like, you know, dudes, like dudes are always hanging out naked together in locker rooms. So it's fine if they morph naked, but like the girls always have like a tasteful undershirt on or something. Yeah. And then like, just like the, the way like the, the, the girls are like, um, are like picture transforming. It's like, I, I think like Jake was like talking about how like Cassie transformed from like a horse to a, to a person again. And he was like, it was really beautiful. It was kind of like the end of like for a minute. And, and I was like, she's okay yes all right let's keep going there are people who have come back to this series like we are as adults and who have written about how they view it as this larger allegory for puberty which i think speaks to this conversation that's not necessarily something that i was thinking about as i was reading because the book moves really quickly like i was in it I was like just breezing through the pages and contrary to what many of you might believe because I do read quite a few of these books for the podcast just because a book is short and written for children does not mean that it necessarily moves quickly this book moved quickly so I I didn't find myself lingering on like the larger potential meanings like I wasn't doing a lot of analyses of it but there are people who read it now as a commentary on puberty what are your thoughts on that? I can see that. I get, I can honestly see that. If I, I think I could see that more if they weren't already teenagers. Yeah. I think. I, I think. I think. I. I could definitely get behind that reading a lot. Um, a lot more if they weren't already like in high school and teenagers and already like, technically like is having experienced most of this. So. So yeah. I don't. I find that interesting. I also find it just interesting how like how the author or authors like decided to like depict everyone's different like transformations and like how and why and like so why is Cassie a horse girl right uh which I'm pretty sure like is 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 something that is like explored later and then like this up with like Rachel and I don't know I don't know I I think it's really interesting I don't I don't hate it I think it's really cool it is interesting and I Let's talk about the horse girl thing for a moment because <laughs> we have, we've explored a couple of horse girl books on the podcast in the past. I was something of a horse girl as a kid. I feel as though in the 90s, there was like this thing with horse girls, especially teenaged horse girls, that it was like sort of a sneaky, sexy thing, right? Like a horse mm-hmm. girl is generally somebody who spends all this time at the barn and maybe she um, doesn't hang out with a lot of other kids her age in the way that a lot of other kids her age hang out with each other. She has a whole separate life away from school because not everybody can be a horse girl. And there's something that is unattainable. I think about like the horse world in general, it's expensive. You kind of have to know somebody to get you into it. And then of course there's that like, (laughs) that trove of like you know any girl and in this case a horse girl like letting down her long hair like there's the stereotype of horse girls with the long ponytails or the braids and then you like take the scrunchie out and she's she's hot so I wonder if that has anything to do with it I can definitely see that because Cassie is also framed as like the the damsel in this book as well because she's the one who gets kidnapped by the yurks and she's also the only one who manages to save someone at the very end but it's only because the woman hopped on her back when she became a horse and rode her out of there but yeah it's like she's she's the damsel in distress she doesn't really do much i don't think she's the one who got them into that zoo that was a rachel right no cassie is no that was cassie okay cassie's mom i think it's her mom who's the vet or her dad's the vet and her mom runs this this sort of like amusement park 
zoo hybrid called the gardens so the other interesting thing about cassie is that she's kind of their in to like the animal world like she's the one who gets them access to all of these bigger animals that they can morph into creatures that will actually give them like a literal fighting chance with the yerks so i also wonder if like part of the choice of making her a horse is that like for a kid something about being a horse girl is like i don't know that kind of like typifies being an animal lover i think Mm -hmm. like when i when i remember the kids that i grew up with who were especially passionate about animals in general like almost all of them were into horses horses are great they're real dumb but they're great (laughs) yeah they're real but they're beautiful dumb and beautiful and Tobias as a bird is also kind of interesting because he has a really troubling kind of personal history. Um, his parents are gone. I believe he's in foster care with family members that like really don't want anything to do with him. And the fact that he latches onto this identity as a creature that can literally like fly away from everything on the earth. I, I don't it's kind think of heartbreaking, to, It's heartbreaking and you don't have to read too closely to understand what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, like, and, like, uh, I think it was Jake asks Tobias, like, why do you want to be a bird all the time? And, like, Tobias just doesn't say anything. But I think that's, like, I think that's explored in other books. I don't I don't know, though. Probably is. But, yeah, I, I think it's just really heartbreaking. And then in the end, when you find out that, like, Tobias cannot turn back, but also, like, he probably doesn't want to because there's really nothing for him um, as, a, as a human, which is very, very sad that he like would choose to be a bird rather than a person. Yeah, very, very sad. A moment for Homer the dog, because <gasps> I loved Jake's experience morphing into Homer the dog. As listeners know, I am the very proud mother to a golden retriever <laughs> named Irving, AKA Irv. And the way that K.A. Applegate wrote about Jake's time in Homer's body and sort of like it's so adorable it was so adorable and like I just feel like the authors put into such plain prose like the way that I have always imagined my dog sees the world but haven't been able to like so finely define like they talk about how the dog just like feels everything so strongly. Like when the dog is happy, he's so happy. But when the dog is is sad, he's in like deep despair. And nothing could be more true of my <laughs> pretty but dumb golden retriever. Like he has two modes. He is either like just the picture of joy or he is so dramatic and like <laughs> doing constant performance art about how he's afraid of everything and how, how hard it is to be him. Like there's no in-between with the dog. <laughs> yeah, and like he describes the way he can smell things and taste things and just like his urges as a dog. And I thought that was so smart because, you know, like a dog is an animal that so many kid readers would be familiar with. And so I think showing readers how a morph works first through Homer's experience mm-hmm. and like seeing how Jake figures out how to like navigate his brain alongside Homer's brain. It helps the whole concept of morphing to make sense because it's, like, a really tangible example. Yeah, because, like, when – so when the kids morph, they, like, meld with, like, the brain of the animal. So it's, like, they're both, like, fighting for control, and it's just so great. I I also love the part where he morphs into a lizard, a green aioli. Because it was just so funny because I have so many of those around my house. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what they're like. They just, this is this is this is a lizard. And it was just, it was incredibly delightful. Yeah, I thought those moments were really well done. And knowing that the other books are um, in first person from different narrators, it, I'm sure it's cool to see like how each of the characters embodies different animals over the course of the series. We have to talk about Tom. Jake's older brother. Yeah, Tom. And about the cultiness that we see in this in this book. A couple of months ago, we had Amanda Montel of Cultish on the podcast, and we talked about a Sweet Valley cult book, but I would love to know her thoughts on The Sharing, which is the cult <laughs> that we see in Animorphs. It's kind of like the front for the Yerks funnel into their like society. Their yeah. society, like 
they've basically attracted all of these teenagers um, and other like innocent humans and like some of them like want to be there and then some of them don't and the ones that don't are put in cages but the ones that do get like a nice cabin with like tv when they're not being you know like gundam controlled by a yerk in their brain yeah i mean of course but it's it's really dark because you don't know how you you don't know at the beginning like how voluntary this is and Tom is Jake's older brother, and we're introduced pretty early on to their tricky dynamic. They have always been really close, but Jake is feeling kind of kind of bad because he didn't make the basketball team. And Tom is like a champion basketball player, and he's embarrassed to tell Tom that he's not going to be on the team. Um, and so he's kind of trying to figure out what's going on between them. He sort of thinks that that's why Tom is being distant. Mm-hmm. But, but it turns, turns out, out there's that a Tom, yerk in his brain. <laughs> there's a yerk in his brain. And Tom has gasp, quit the basketball team. Like, how dare <gasps> no. you squander your potential, Tom? The golden child? The golden child. Like, get back on the court, pal. Jeez. He's joined the sharing. He's joined a cult. And uh, the language that they use to describe the sharing is, like, really on point with the things that Amanda Montel writes about in Cultish or that she and her co-host talk about on the Sounds Like a Cult podcast, which is one of my favorites. Uh, I was like, cult, 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 like throughout the margins of my Animorphs book. Like I have so many like little stars that just say cults because they must have done some research on how teens especially are brought into cultish And into cults, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah, when, when I first started reading about it, I was like, oh, this is, I know exactly where this is going. And it went like, it was, it was exactly what I wanted from the sharing, actually. It was yeah. creepy. It was uh, kind of also true to how actual people like get involved in cults. Um, yeah. And it was just, yeah. Like, aside from, like, the sci-fi aspect of it, I was like, oh, this is a little too close to home. (laughs) Yeah, because we have Tom, like, kind of trying to convince Jake to come to a meeting. Mm -hmm. And you can see how if Jake didn't kind of already know that something fishy was going on, like, in the world in general, he would be quick to go along with it because he's so desperate for his brother to think he's cool and to approve of him and to, like, move past whatever weirdness is going on between them. And so just this, even, like, the simple matter of recruitment, like, how these invitations to the sharing are passed among teens. The assistant principal of the school is also involved. He's the leader. (laughs) There's a police officer who's involved, like, all of these adults who are in theory supposed to be trustworthy characters for these kids are also secretly trying to bring them into the sharing so that they can be part of the Yerks takeover. Yeah, it is it is so creepy. It's just like the people that you thought you could rely on and count on your like, you know, your like your your older peers or like the adults in the room. They turn they turn out to be the ones who are trying to get you into the cold or they're trying to kill you if you're Jake. <laughs> yeah, I also I feel like kids would probably love the idea of like their assistant principal being evil because assistant principals are always in charge of discipline and like I don't know I guess at my school like the principal was sort of like the jokey face of things but if you got in trouble it was the assistant principal that got involved yeah yeah um I I remember in middle school uh we had an assistant principal who always uh, shoved a clipboard down the back of his pants so we called him clipboard butt of course, of course. Uh, we would we would immediately get like um, in school suspension for that if we ever called him that. Yeah, he was pretty evil actually. <laughs> Maybe he was in the sharing. He probably was. He 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 probably had like a yurt in his brain. Yeah, you can never be too sure about these things. If there's one thing the animorphs have taught us, could be anyone. It could be anyone. So the the book really like heats up at the end where Cassie has been kidnapped. We have the rest of the teens all morphed into different creatures. They're trying to get Tom out of the sharing because Jake is desperate to have his brother back. Yep. And like Tom like doesn't want to be in the sharing. He's right. not in like the cabin. He's in the cage. Right. <laughs> so he wants he- to play basketball. Yeah, he wants to play basketball, and, and like, he was, like, at, at, like, one point, he was, like, trying to, like, warn Jake, which I thought was, like, a really, like, clever one paragraph, if you blink and miss it moment. Yeah. Well, and they sort of have mixed results, right? Because they do save Cassie. They do. They don't save, save Tom. Tom, mm-hmm. like, flops back into the cold on accident. He does. Tobias is still a bird. 
Still a bird. And the Yerks are still at large, which sucks, but is good because there's going to be 53 more books about how this all goes on. Now, I promised you a preview about how the series ends. Yeah, please tell me how this ends because now I'm now I'm worried. <laughs> okay, so again, this is very high level because I haven't read the last book, but this is what I found. There's an article in the Michigan Daily in 2020 entitled The Disturbing End of Animorphs. Here is one line. You see, it turns out that there was a reason why my children's library didn't have the final book in this children's series. While it could be a mighty coincidence, after reading the end, I'm left to assume some adult somewhere decided this was too much for kids and removed it from the library. Apparently, in the last book, Jake orders his cousin Rachel to death. I know. Tobias, who at that point is apparently Rachel's lover, and that's where I'm a little, I'm, I'm curious how the bird thing works in. I, yeah, how does the bird thing work? I thought he didn't turn back. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe it's a very emotional relationship. Tobias, Rachel's lover, never forgives Jake and goes to live out the rest of his life in exile, perhaps as a bird. And then Jake suffers from what is clearly PTSD and can't live a normal life. This, this series really is like an allegory about war. Um, people were very upset about this ending and... He orders his, his own cousin to death, basically? What, what happened to Cassie? <laughs> that I don't know, but I do know that Catherine Applegate must have gotten so much grief about this ending that she wrote an open letter to people. Oh my god! This is what she said. These were the last two paragraphs. So you don't like the way our little fictional war came out? You don't like that one war simply led to another? Fine. Pretty soon, you'll all be of voting age. This is, this is harsh. Pretty soon, you'll all be of voting age and of draft age. So when someone proposes a war, remember that even the most necessary wars, even the rare wars where the lines of good and evil are clear and clean, end with a lot of people dead, a lot of people crippled, and a lot of orphans, widows, and grieving parents. If you are mad at me because that's what you have to take away from Animorphs, too bad. I couldn't have written it any other way and remained true to the respect I have always felt for Animorphs readers. That is staunchly anti-war and I'm really behind it. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're here for it. Like, it, and I do, I admire any, any middle grade or YA author who feels so strongly about not writing down to their audiences. Like clearly when she talks about the respect that she has for her Animorphs audience, like she didn't want it to end with this happy ending but I can see why that ending would be very controversial and polarizing oh yeah no absolutely especially like because the, like the main character becomes the villain basically for, mm -hmm. for ordering the death of like one of his best friends that is that is that is so interesting yeah huh mm -hmm. so now you don't have to read the rest of the 53 books now I know what happens, but like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure to, to here, I'm, I'm going to Google it real quick. All right, we're doing uh, real-time research. Yes, we are. Uh, uh, let's see here. I'm keeping all of this in. I love it. Oh, good, good, good. Wow, I, I know when he was conceived now. That's great. Mm, uh, helpful. Do, 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 do. With Lumen's uncle, becoming an animorph, blah, 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 trapped in the morph after the first mission. Uh... Nope, nope, he is permanently, he is permanently a, a red-tailed hawk. So Rachel falls in love with a red-tailed hawk. Yeah. All right. She's into it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so no, 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 he's, he regains his morphing ability at some point. Okay. Wow, there's time travel in Animorphs. I didn't realize there's time travel. I'm overwhelmed. I am so overwhelmed right now. 
Okay, yeah, he is he is allowed to become human temporarily rather than human forever. So it's like the opposite. He is he is a hawk, but he can become a human and not a human who become a, who can become a hawk. Wow, there's also a part that's called killing Hitler. That's great. <laughs> I am I am I am getting off of this Wikipedia. We are not going to we are not going to get into this time travel stuff. We're done. There's a lot of stuff, but this does <laughs> this of. this puts the Tobias Rachel love affair in a little bit better perspective. Perspective. I'm curious, Ashley, do you think you would have enjoyed this series when you were a kid? You know, actually, probably not. Same. If, yeah, like, I don't, so I, I was a huge Artemis Fowl fan, and, like, a lot of people did not like the last book of the Artemis Fowl series because, you know, Artie dies, right? I, I, I can say that now because it's been over 10 years. It's fine. Artemis dies, uh, but then he kind of comes back back in the last chapter but not the same as he was and then like you find out that the entire book is just like a cycle of Foley telling the revived Artemis his own story back to him which I which I found incredibly endearing and wonderful I do not think like like child me loved that so much um but like I don't think I don't think middle or high school me would have enjoyed um the Animorphs ending because I do like those kind of like not like neat endings, but I do like the cylindrical, like the circle endings. Though. Full circle. Was Animorphs what you expected based on like anything you knew about it or had heard about it before? It was exactly what I expected, honestly. Um, I, I I didn't I didn't realize that like so many um, like middle grade staples came from Animorphs. That surprised me. But like Animorphs in and of itself, absolutely exactly what I thought it would be. <laughs> great it's nice it's nice when things are exactly what you expect them to be sometimes yeah I like went into it I'm like okay we're going for like weird alien animal morphing shenanigans and that's exactly what we got that's what you got other than animorphs what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners Mm, does it have to be middle grade no it can be anything you anything let's see here I wholeheartedly enjoyed uh, The Undertaking of Heart and Mercy by Megan Bannon. It just, if you were looking for a soft a soft fantasy that's in the same vein as Diana Wynne-Jones' um, House of Castle, that's it. Like, the, the, the Undertaking of Heart and Mercy is the one. Um, if you're looking for a more contemporary spin on it, um, The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches by Sangu Mandana was also fantastic. It was like a soft found family that um, reminded me a lot of House in the Cerulean Sea by TJ Klune. And it was just really lovely and heartfelt and swoony. And I really love like soft fantasies like that. So that's what I've like been gravitating towards recently. Great. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Now, we have to take a moment. I need to congratulate you on the massive success of your new book. The Dead Romantics. I guess at this point it's not like a super new book, but it, it's new and the excitement is new. I feel like everybody's talking about it, but I want to hear you talk about it. Like tell us more about the book for those who don't know about it, maybe a little bit about what inspired it, anything you'd like to share. Uh, this book. Okay, well, um, this book is about ghosts, obviously. Okay, no. Uh, the Dead Romantics is my love letter to uh, romance novels and especially ghost stories. It is about a uh, ghost writer for a very famous romance novelist who must return to her family's funeral home to say goodbye to her late father one last time. And she finds herself also oddly being haunted by the ghost of her very recently deceased uh, and very, very hot editor. And it's just, it's half rom-com, half sort of journey through grief and like different types, types of love, like the love for your family members versus the love for your hometown and the love for the person you used to be and the person you want to be. And also, you know, sexy ghost boating love also that one um there is an adorable golden retriever uh who is mayor of the small town of Maremont. his name is fetch he has won three times in a row wow i think a golden retriever it's like not out of the realm of possibility that my golden retriever could run for office and win at some point Absolutely. Um, dogs are the best judge of character and they just, they, they understand humanity better than humanity sometimes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just a small, quaint, um, 
just, it's just a love story about love. So. Yeah. Uh, well, I will include links to all of your work, including the Dead Romantics on the show notes page for this episode. Congratulations on its success. It is. It has been so fun chatting with you. I'm glad we made it happen after all this time. It did not disappoint. And I just really appreciate you reading this wild book with me and then discussing it for our audience. This was so much fun. I am so glad I finally read this book and I'm glad I finally read it for this. I don't think there could have been a better reading experience, honestly. It was it was weird, it was batshit, and if you haven't read it, this is your sign to at least try the first book. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'd love to hear that. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Of course, you as well. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.